God's word in 2 Kings 15 says, In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places, and the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household and governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Ibleam and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. And he reigned one month in Samaria. Then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tizrah and came to Samaria. And he struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. At that time, Menahem sacked Tiphsah and all who were in it in his territory from Tirzah on, because they did not open it to him. Therefore he sacked it, and he ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. In the thirty-ninth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned ten years in Samaria. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Pul, the king of Assyria, came up against the land, and Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, fifty shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the deeds of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah his son reigned in his place. In the fiftieth year of Azariah king of Judah, Pekahiah the son of Menahem began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did not turn away from, sorry, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He turned away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Areah. He put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. 
In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah the son of Remaliah began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath, Peleser, king of Assyria, came and captured Aijon, Abel, Beth, Makkah, John Noah, Kedesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and struck him down, and put him to death, and reigned in his place, in the twentieth year of Joshim, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah, and all that he did, behold, they are written in the books of the chronicles of the king of Israel. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Ramaliah against Judah. Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Ahaz his son reigned in his place. Well, Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zissendorf, you know he's going to have something famous to say with a name like that, once said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Zinzendorf was born in 1700 to an Austrian family of nobility, and he used his influence and wealth to help persecuted Christians in Europe. He used his land and opened it up to any persecuted Christians, so that over 600 Christians came to live on his property that he purchased. Zinzendorf was not just committed to the truth of the gospel in its ideas, its objective facts. He also believed you needed to believe it in your heart. And he saw the need for people to be saved. He especially came to this in 1731 when he met a converted slave who was freed from the West Indies whose name was Anthony Ulrich. Ulrich came back to England and was looking for men and women to come back to his West Indies, where he was, and to preach the gospel to slaves, including his brother and sister. Zinzendorf then took up the mantle, so to speak, went back to his land and asked if anyone would go, and two missionaries then went. Zinzendorf, as far as we know, was the first to send modern missionaries, even 60 years before William Carey. And this was such a passion for his, in his life that he ended up sending missionaries to Greenland, Finland, Georgia, Suriname, the Guinea Coast, South Africa, Algeria, the native North Americans, Ceylon, Romania, and Turkey. Of the roughly 600 people on his property, 70 went out as missionaries. And thus his statement, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Well, Zinzendorf hasn't been forgotten yet, but most of those missionaries were. And the reality is that every single one of us will be too. I'd like you to raise your hands if you can tell me the names of your great-grandparents. 
Your great-grandparents, my children cannot name their great-grandparents. Put your hands down. All right, if you can name the names of your great-great-grandparents, raise your hand. That is not that long ago. Less than probably 150 years, and except for some very studious young men in the back, most of us don't know the names of our own family members, the people we came from. And even if we go back to our great-grandparents, and I asked you, where were they born? Where do they live? What really mattered to them? What really made them sad? What were the key moments of their life? We'd go, I don't know. We don't know anything about them. You know, unless you're someone like Wes Martin, Tracy's father, who does, looking back in genealogies, most of us have no idea who we came from and what was significant in our ancestry. And here this morning, we come to two kings of Judah, five kings of Israel, and I'm sure that more than one of you, as I was reading, were thinking, this is boring. What in the world are we reading this morning? I mean, I came for some inspiration, and I just heard a lot of lists and a lot of names, and what in the world is going on? Well, what is going on is that we're being reminded that there were other people who lived before us, and we're being reminded what really mattered. What mattered is if they lived for the Lord. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. This morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at this so-called boring history and then we're going to answer the question is everything really just futile i mean if four generations from us no one will even know our name is everything we're doing now just pointless and then we're going to ask is there any real meaning in this life but here we begin second kings 15 we'll look at these men they start with a king from judah remember that at this point in israel's history they are now split apart we have the tribes Two tribes in the south that are called Judah and the ten tribes to the north called Israel. And the tribes in the south have been more faithful. And we read of Azariah, who you probably know better as Uzziah. Because there's a famous passage in Isaiah 6 that begins, In the year that King Uzziah died. And then it says that Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne and the angels were saying, or crying out, Holy, 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 as we read this morning. And so Uzziah is known for his death. But in his life, he was mostly faithful. In fact, we could turn to 2 Chronicles 26 and read of many good things he did. The Lord really blessed him. But tragically, like many, when he became strong, he became proud. And in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, it says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He was not allowed to do this. So the priest confronted him, removed him, and the Lord struck him with the leprosy that we read of here in 2 Kings 15, 5. But Uzziah, or Azariah, whichever name he used, reigned 52 years. And in those 52 years, we see five kings of Israel. And the first one is Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam II. And he's the fourth descendant of Jehu. Now that's significant because 2 Kings 10.30, there was a promise that is brought up in this passage that Jehu, you'll have four descendants after you. Zechariah, you're number four. So what does that mean? 
Well, we find out it means he doesn't reign very long because they have all been unfaithful to the Lord and he is assassinated in his sixth month of his reign. And this really sets in motion the extremely chaotic times for Israel with them slowly spiraling into greater and greater suffering, eventually leading them into total defeat and exile. But why in the world would God allow this to happen to his people? Well, it's because God demands of his people the same holiness that he demands of everyone else. God does not play favorites. I don't know how much y'all pay attention to politics, but the president of our country has a unique privilege, and that is they can give presidential pardons. And often at the end of a president's term, they give a whole list of pardons. And normally a couple of them kind of raise some eyebrows like, I'm not sure you're pardoning them because you think they were innocent and you're righting a wrong. That more seems like that's your buddy. That's your crony. That's someone who you think is going to benefit you by letting them out. They're getting free because they're friends or some connection. God does not give benefits to his cronies. He doesn't go, well, you sin, but hey, we're friends, so I'm going to use my power to get you off the hook. No, God in his love holds every person accountable. God in his justice will not let Israel go free if they're rebelling against him. And thus, as we've gone through kings, we've seen God send prophets to them to warn them. We've seen them blessing them, trying to say, will you come back due to punishment or blessing? And they won't. And so God, as he warned in Deuteronomy 29, said, if you will turn, you will be punished. And we begin to read of that here. And we then have this man who assassinated Zechariah, Shalem. And you might think, oh, well, this is good. We've gotten rid of those people from Jehu. Now we have a new family. They're going to lead the nation in righteousness. But then he's assassinated within his first month. So we go on to king number three, a man named Menahem. All right, a new person. Now we're finally going to get someone who, after 200 years of unfaithfulness, is going to return Israel to the Lord. And then we read that Menahem is worse than even the pagan kings around him. He's like um, Haman, that's right, Haman and Esther. You remember Haman. If Mordecai won't even bow, he's so angry, he wants to wipe out a whole people group. Well, that's basically what Menahem's like. I'm king, I come to your gates, and you don't open the doors right away? Well, then I'm going to kill you all, and I'll rip open the pregnant women. Your language fails to describe such cruel vindictive and wicked acts like that you know we're a far cry from amaziah from the last chapter who pleased god because he would only punish those who the law said to and he went no farther now we have a king who only does what's right in his own eyes and only will do what causes people to bow to him now Menahem does bring a little security he's there for 10 years but he's no reformer at least not in a godly sense he continues in the sins of Jeroboam. And now he has to buy off Assyria. No longer is Israel able to defeat their enemies. Now he has to pay money. But what happens when you pay off bullies? They come back. They learn, ah, they'll give me lunch money. I know where I'm getting it tomorrow. And now from here until they are completely defeated, Israel will never get rid of Assyria. Menahem then passes the throne to his son Pekahiah, but he only reigns 
two years before he is assassinated. I mean, just imagine four presidents, and of all of our four presidents, three of them had been killed because they are president. <laughs> Chaos is reigning in this nation. So we come to Pekah, who reigns for 20 years, but like every other Israelite king, he also continues in the sins of Jeroboam. Thus, we're saddened, though not surprised when we read in chapter 15, 29, that Assyria now comes, no longer wanting money, but they take five towns and large regions. It's hard to get the exact geography, but it seems like at least a third to almost half of Israel's land is taken from them. And he also takes some Israelites into captivity. The exile has not fully begun, but it has has not fully finished, but it has begun. Israel is eking out in existence. And Pekah can't even keep himself in power because he too is assassinated. The fourth king assassinated in five kings. So there, four out of five kings are killed, and we read of Hosea, but we won't hear of anything else about him till we get to chapter 18. But his reign will be short, seven years before Assyria comes, destroys Israel, and takes them into exile. But then the chapter ends by the author going back to Judah. So we started with Judah in the south. He described five kings of Israel in the north, and now he goes back to Judah. He kind of brackets what's going on, and we have another faithful king of Judah. And yet, as with many of the kings of Judah, he then also mentions, yes, he's faithful, but he didn't remove the high places. One is left wondering, well, how long can Judah survive if they try to ride the fence as Israel had done before them? And yet, the author hints at Jotham's faithfulness because he rebuilt the gates at the temple. Second Chronicles 27 tells him defeating the Ammonites and building cities and being able to take tribute because it says, Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. And yet again, tragically it ends by telling of Judah having battles in verse 37. A hint that all is not completely right in Judah. So the author purposefully frames this text. He has good king, five bad kings, mostly good king. He's trying to paint a contrast between Israel and Judah and show this is what happens if you continue in the path of Israel. Judah, watch out. You are continuing down that path. Yes, things are going well, but you must love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we have flown through these seven kings. Now, if you've ever been in school, you probably took a standardized test at one point. And in that standardized test, they would sometimes have a reading comprehension, comprehension portion. They would ask you to recall answers to what you just read. And if I now passed out a test asking you to answer the various facts about those seven kings, I would think that you would do quite poorly. Sorry, not trying to insult you or my teaching. It's just not that invigorating of facts. And if I took the test, I probably wouldn't do much better either. You know, these are the type of verses that if you try to read through the Bible, you end the morning going, uh, I don't know what to do with that. That was interesting. Okay. And you move on. So what do we do with this? It seems so boring and pointless. But as I've already hinted, 
I think that in itself can be its own application. You know, we just read of seven different kings. We didn't read of seven servants. We didn't read of seven insignificant people. These were the most powerful. These were the wealthiest people in their society. And yet now, millennia later, we could care less. They're inconsequential. They're boring. They're unnoteworthy. So what are people going to say millennia, what are people going to say a hundred years, about us when we die? What about even the most significant people in our country? We have had 46 presidents. How many can you name? How many could you say significant things about their life? Or as we began earlier, how many of us can remember grandparents, great-grandparents, or great-great-grandparents? The point of all this is to note that what we value today will one day be on a history page that people will go, why do I have to read this? Or just forgotten completely. And so it makes us ask, does what we do even matter? Is there any point to this? Is there any meaning to life at all? And that is our next section, is all futile. And tragically, many people have no purpose in their life. They're just existing day to day, just looking for the next pleasure, looking for the next enjoyment. But if you ask them, what's your life about? What are you living for? I don't know. Why am I here? And the reality is, if we just came from nebulae, and when we die, it's over, nothing else, no punishment, no reward, then there is no ultimate meaning in life. Now, this is not your pastor saying this, as though I've thought through these things. Thinking people have recognized this is the reality. Sigmund Freud, you've probably all heard of him, the famous psychoanalyst, he said, the moment a man questions the meaning and value of life, he is sick, since objectively, neither has any existence. Of course, a wonderful model that we should shape our psychology after in our mental health industry, because life has no meaning. Boy, I wonder why we're a depressed society. Nonetheless, this viewpoint is called nihilism, from the word nihil, meaning nothing. And as you can imagine, many people who actually think through this and are wrestling with it and come to this point and go, look, life has no meaning. They commit suicide, because if life has no meaning, why continue? And yet oftentimes, people don't allow themselves to continue those thoughts because they can begin to get scared and they just run off. I don't, I'm just not going to think about it. And yet many people, though they would never know they believe the philosophy of nihilism, they live it out day to day. I read one person, this is kind of, a, these are not like the most intellectually sounding things, but I think they're the way a lot of Americans think. They wrote on the purpose of life, you exist because your mother popped you out. There's no actual purpose for existence. We are just like any other animals, plants, insects struggling for survival. It doesn't matter if you live or not in life, but it will matter to your parents, relatives, people whom you choose to have relationships with. Now you might be thinking, man, I thought church was supposed to be inspiring. I thought we were supposed to come and be excited to go out and, boy, this is 
a little depressing. And yet, this is the reality of life if you only live under the sun. And I get that phrase from Ecclesiastes. So I want you to turn there. Keep a Well, we won't be going back to 2 Kings. Um, we'll be looking at other passages. So turn to Ecclesiastes. You can find Psalms, then Proverbs. So Psalms is really easy right in the middle. Then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. Or you just hit buttons on your phone and you find Ecclesiastes. Either way. Ecclesiastes, we read chapter 1 earlier. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. Here's Solomon, the great king. Most wealth of his time, everything he wanted. This is what he says. Second Kings, sorry, Ecclesiastes two four through eleven. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now you can just imagine this is on a show. People are going. These are the cribs we want. I mean, look, he doesn't have a house. He has houses, and he's not going to, like, the city park. He owns his own parks. He's got everything. He's built everything he wants. Not only that, verse 7, I bought male and female slaves, and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. He's able to fulfill any sexual fantasy he has. He's able to have any pleasure, whether it be in music or entertainment. Verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, so he's wise. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He had everything, anything he wanted, he could purchase. And many Americans, if they could be told they could have that, they would say, that's the life. Everything I want, any pleasure, as long as I want it. And yet he says, under the sun, if all there is is what we see, nothing else, then it is complete worthlessness, complete vanity. And many people recognize this, so they go, okay, well, we just got to make up a meaning for our life. Maybe there is no meaning, but everyone just make up their own meaning. And you can't tell me what my meaning is, and I can't tell you. You know, one person said it this way. Your meaning isn't the meaning of life. It's just what gives your life meaning. For example, my life has meaning through my family and friends. But if a hermit never had any family or friends and just lived in isolation all his life, that doesn't mean that his life is meaningless. Get me? Actually, I don't get him. But So if you're trying to find your place in life, you need to look at what you already have. Because it's what you already have that motivates you to live. Just ask yourself, what would happen if you did die? Who would be affected by it? Personally, that thought keeps me alive because it's kind of a responsibility, you know? And then they conclude with, but honestly, in the end, all of this doesn't even matter. Now that's a very depressing statement. And tragically, many people live their whole lives never coming up with, why am I here? They may give a statement, they may offer something, but they don't really want to wrestle and deal with this basic fact of life. That our life 
either matters or it doesn't. It's going to count for something or it won't. Just think about our town, Kell Highway, Kent Boulevard. Who in the world were those men? I know they did something famous here. Now we drive on them. Woo! They're famous. We get to drive on your name now. Wow. Way to go. Does life have any meaning? Well, that's where we turn last. Is there real meaning? And Solomon thought there was. So turn to the end of Ecclesiastes. If you're wrestling with this, read the whole book. It's great. We don't have time to deal with it all. But he ends with what really does matter. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So in essence, Solomon is saying that real meaning is tied to how you relate to God. And thus we have to ask, well, what's the meaning of God's actions? Why does God do anything? Now, some people then make a really bad argument. They go, well, God was lonely. God needed relationships. God needed us. That's why we have meaning, because God needs us. And yet, God is perfect. He needs nothing. Acts 17, 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't live in temples by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now what I'm about to say next might strike you as very bizarre. It might strike you as quite odd because we often live with such an under-the-sun horizontal view that we don't think of God and what He's really like. And that is, why did God do everything? God did everything because He wanted His glory. He wanted His name to be known. Now, if I said to you, I do everything because I want everyone to know how great Jeremy is, you'd think, well, that's a selfish, upstart person. Who are they to think everyone needs to know who they are? But that's because... I'm a finite, not that significant being. We don't realize the beauty and the perfection and the infinity of God. He's the only being who can say, out of love, I want you to know what I'm like. Out of my goodness to you, I want you to realize what I'm like. And so God does everything for his glory. Ezekiel 20, 36, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, it's not for your sake of house of Israel that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. That's why God does everything. Or the 23rd Psalm, famous Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Verse 3, he says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You know, our meaning then is tied to God's because he made us as his image. He made us to reflect Him, to be a picture of Him to this world. We were made to know God and to make Him known. John Piper says, God's aim, therefore, was that man would so act that he would mirror forth God. Man is given the exalted status of image bearer so that he would reflect the glory of his Maker whose image he bears. 
So everything we do as image bearers finds meaning as we reflect God to the world around us. And that is not the some boring thing. God does all of this for our joy. You know, God intended us to have joy in Him. The problem is often people leave off that important prepositional phrase, in Him. Well, God just wants us to be happy. God just wants us to be joyful. Well, yes, if you tack on in Him. He did not make us just to be pleasured, to be happy in ourselves or in His creation. But to see that in creation and recognize that's pointing back to Him. We even see this, that God is glorified and we get joy by what Jesus says. I'm going to read John 14, 13 through 14, and then John 16. These are two passages where Jesus is talking about prayer. First one, John 14, 13 through 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So John 14, if you ask, I'll do it because we want God's glory. John 16, 23, 24. In that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Now, last time Jesus said this, he said that the Father would be glorified. But now, he says that your joy may be full. You want fullness of joy? You want your life to have meaning? It's tied to how you are seeking God's glory. Now, at this point, we can get really confused and think, okay, so I need to go be a missionary. I need to go to seminary. I need to be a pastor. I need to start leading Bible studies. That's what is God's calling me to do. That's not at all what God is necessarily calling you to do. Glorifying God is not some esoteric spiritual life. Let me give you four basic ways you glorify God. First, you glorify God when you do anything good that reflects Him. Matthew 5.16 In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your God who is in heaven. Second, we give glory to God when we then show that everything we do is only because of God's goodness to us first. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You want to glorify God, then any time you do something good, remind yourself, well, God's working in me. Praise God. And when someone compliments you, say, well, praise God that he's working in my life. We glorify God, third, when we're doing things not for man's applause, human's applause, but for God's. Colossians 3, 23-24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Thus, we should work hard. We should do excellent work. Not because, well, if I don't work hard, I won't get a promotion. Or if I don't work hard, they're going to fire me. Well, I've got to work hard because I want to be noticed. We work hard whether any of that ever happens because we're doing it for the Lord. Fourthly, we glorify God not just in 
an aspect of our life, like coming to church, that's when I glorify God. But rather, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, the context there is that some Christians came from idol worship, and in their culture, they would purchase meat from the idol temples. And some Christians thought, ah, oh, I can't eat, eat meat anymore because it came from that place. And these Christians, Paul is calling them, be willing to give up your right to eat meat out of love for your brother. And if you do that, you're glorifying God. Now that's a very anti-American statement because we say, well, you do whatever you want and everyone else, they need to bend to me. I got rights. Y'all all got to submit to what I say is right. And God is calling us, no, live your life as a servant for others. That I'm going to do nothing that puts a stumbling in front of y'all. I'm here to serve you. So a life that will be remembered, a life that will be honored, a life that will be meaningful is not so much what you do. It's not so much what title you have or what possessions. It's for whom you're doing it and how you do it. And if we grasp these truths, it can be revolutionary in our daily life. One of my professors, John Hanna, put it this way. One's perspective can be utterly transformed from the drain of repetitious task, whether it be doing another worksheet for class, cleaning my room, or helping around the house, to the purposeful insight that my work is my gift to God. It is a means by which I may glorify Him. By revealing His character on the bus to school or at athletic or play practices, I can confidently know that whatever I am and whatever task I'm doing, I'm doing it for the God who I am alone to seek honor. Does Christ see himself in my attitudes concerning the work he's given me to do? It's a transforming thought that life is not about money, easy circumstances, or early retirement. It's about God seeing himself in our everyday task by how we do them. Now let's wrap this up by thinking again about what we read in 2 Kings 15. And let's think about what the author didn't talk about. You know, the author didn't say a single thing about what their robes look like or how big the diamonds were in their crown. He didn't say anything about whether they were fat kings or skinny kings, whether they were athletic or they were klutzes, whether they were smart or whether they struggled in school, whether they were social butterflies or socially awkward. Three things. They lived. Did they serve the Lord or not? They died. Though they were kings, all that mattered was did they live for the Lord or not? And so the question stands, are you living a meaningful life between those ends? Because the first and the last are guaranteed. You're born. This isn't a dream. You're alive. You're going to die. And you'll pay taxes. And what's going to happen in between the first and the last reality? And here we're reminded that you can be a king. It really doesn't matter. But you could also be a servant. And that could be the most glorifying and meaningful life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would we see the great joy, the hope there is in knowing you and that what we do for you will last. It will be meaningful. 
Lord, we can get so caught up in the so-called rat race, the daily activities that we lose sight of what ultimately matters. Would you renew our focus to you? And may we lead lives that honor you and bring joy and good to those around us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.